0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: So interconnectors are critical. A lot of investment is going in all over the world, whether it is in Asia or in Europe on the interconnectors. I personally feel that those interconnectors are probably not big enough. Uh, And although the economics of it doesn't um, show so right now, the benefit cases don't show, if we actually were to make those interconnectors larger, it would help manage the diversity. So there might be a greater fixed cost, but over a long period of 20, 25 years, that fixed cost would give us many more returns.
0: That was Suket Singhal, CEO of Secure Meters, speaking about the challenges of attracting investments into upgrading power grids around the world to adapt them to the needs of a carbon-free economy. Welcome to The Exchange. I am Lisa Jucca, the European Business Editor of Reuters Breaking Views. On October the 5th, I traveled to the Italian city of Trento to attend the Dolomites Conference on the Future of Climate Change. There, I sat with Suket Singhal, who heads energy efficiency specialist Secure Meters, to discuss the challenges of adapting electricity networks to a world increasingly powered by solar and wind. The International Energy Agency reckons grid investments need to more than double to $750 billion annually if we're serious about decarbonizing the global economy. Still, with returns uncertain, attracting investments is not easy, particularly at the distribution network level. New pricing models need to be put in place to give developers more confidence to invest, argues my guest. If you want to learn more, listen on. So welcome, Suket. It's a real pleasure to have you here today on the exchange, on the sidelines of the Dolomita Conference on Climate Change. Um, It's really nice. I mean, we are here in Trento, in a castle actually, and uh, we have been discussing some interesting topics uh, related to the goal of achieving the net zero target. So um, in in our panel discussion yesterday, we were talking about... uh, the rise of electrification, how that uh, is obviously key uh, to move towards, uh, you know, a more sustainable um, uh, world. And um, obviously, we also discussed uh, that, uh, um, you know, there there needs to be a massive upscale uh, of investments in the electric grid. I mean, can you just uh, tell us a little, a little bit more? You know, why do we need? Uh, to invest more uh, in the grid
1: hi uh, lisa thank you so much i think it's been a very very interesting conference and the reality is that the way we are using energy is changing and the fuels with which the energy is coming to us is changing rapidly i think electrification is one part of the clean energy net zero challenge there will be other parts. But talking of electrification here, I think 120 years ago when the grids matured and the grids were made, uh, generate there were large generating stations and they sent power out radially and uh, it only flew, uh, flowed down one way. So uh, flow used to be down the pipe. But now with the advent of low carbon technologies, uh, this has changed. That paradigm has changed. Now generation is happening at central power stations, but it is also happening at other parts of the network. So it's non-radial flow as well as bidirectional flow. So earlier, electricity would only flow down the pipes, but now electricity is flowing up the pipes as well from our rooftop uh, solar plants and uh, other places as well. So that is the main reason why we need to invest in the grids, invest in the networks, because of this paradigm change, the technical aspects uh, of bidirectional and non-radial flow is the reason why we need to invest in grids.
0: So basically what you were just uh, explaining right now is that, for instance, you know, with solar panels, you know, there is like uh, uh, several sources of energies which are kind of spread around uh, the, a country, for instance, while in the past it was just, you know, one big uh, a coal plant, for instance, you know producing the energy that will be uh, would be transformed in electricity, so it 's really a different system and I have seen estimates saying that to adapt to change to make sure you know that we have different and sufficient uh, cables, we should double the annual investments uh, in uh, the grid, which at the moment are about three hundred and thirty billion dollars a year to 750 billion by 2030 which is kind of more than doubly so it's a it's a giant effort um, what are I mean obviously you are a CEO of a company that operates in this segment I mean you know the segment very well what areas are attracting most investments right now and why
1: right. yes absolutely I think we need to double the investment and that number is correct Uh, The areas that are attracting the maximum investment right now are transmission networks. Uh, Because uh, solar plants, wind farms have been put in places where they weren't normally generating plants, a lot of transmission capacity has been put in place so that that energy can be generated there and it can be evacuated to places where it needs to be used. Uh, Now, is the investment needed immediately? or can the investment be deferred? Because the fundamental challenge with the transition is how do you ensure that the energy transition happens, but energy remains affordable and it does not have, because energy has other macroeconomic impacts, and and that is why politically it's a very, very sensitive subject. And I think this is where we can be quite clever. I think if we measure... If we visualize, if we analyze our networks properly, both transmission and medium and low voltage networks, which are the distribution networks, then we can probably defer some investments and make those investments in a more uh, time-bound fashion.
0: So which which segments are maybe overlooked because I obviously I'm based in Europe you can tell me a little bit more I mean obviously your company is is global but uh, originally from India you can tell me maybe more about um, about India itself but you know what we have seen in Europe Right now, I mean, what's it, what is happening is a lot of state investments in um, so-called interconnectors, which are these big uh, power lines, um, you know, often going also across countries. Obviously, Europe is very fragmented, and this cost billions uh, of investments. You know, there's just been a couple in Germany for over 4 billion euros, you know, just to mention. So this is what we're seeing at the moment so big state money coming to particularly interconnectors Um, what about private so what about India Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that but also what about private investments and uh, you know should we also look at other segments
1: yes I think interconnectors are going to be critical to the future Uh, the reality is that both demand and supply are far more diverse than they were on energy and the key thing with electricity is where is it made and at what time is it made and where is it required to be used and at what time is it required to be used so that demand and supply gap electricity is almost unique because it's both in space and time it needs to be matched well so interconnectors are critical a lot of investment is going in all over the world whether it is in Asia or in Europe on the interconnectors I personally feel that those interconnectors are probably not big enough. Uh, and although the economics of it doesn't um, show so right now, the benefit cases don't show, if we actually were to make those interconnectors larger, it would help manage the diversity. So there might be a greater fixed cost. But over a long period of twenty twenty five years, that fixed cost would give us many more returns. Uh, and that's what a lot of Asian countries are trying to do. Like Europe, uh, I could talk about the Indian subcontinent, for example. The, there is a real drive to connect India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh into one grid to be able to use the diversity of demand and also to be able to use the time differences and the sunrise and sunset differences in order to create uh, power where it is needed. Uh, the other place where I think investment is poor and where private enterprise can help is in distribution networks. Um, Distribution networks are already severely constrained and hosting capacity, especially in Europe, is a major concern uh, for merchant solar, for wind plants or for large EV stations, uh, public EV stations. And I think if, if a private enterprise was to invest in some areas, some assets over there, it would be a longer return, it would be a slightly riskier return, but again, once the transition is made, there would be a lot of kilowatt hours to flow through those wires.
0: Yes, and so the distribution network, we're talking about medium and low voltage cables that basically get all the way to our homes. I mean, this is the the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the segment that we're talking about. But, you know, why aren't investors focusing on this? You know, what are the hurdles? Um, uh, you know, have they, are they overlooking something which is potentially interesting or are there technically or regulatory bottlenecks that really, you know, keep investors away from this area.
1: So the distribution network tariffs, uh, while generation has become pretty competitive, there is a uh, a transparent price uh, discovery mechanism. Retail in some parts of Europe is also quite competitive and there is a transparent uh, price discovery mechanism. Distribution networks are private companies or government private partnership companies where the tariff is regulated depending on the RAB the challenge with that is that, you know, that could be maybe 10, 15% of your and my bills at home, but that is very, very tightly regulated. And a reason why a lot of investors aren't going in is because regulators aren't adding to the RAB in order, uh, at the level that it needs to be added, uh, which is part of the affordability challenge. But uh, by adding one percentage point to 15%, you could probably have a very, very large impact. And if regulators were to look at that, then the overall cost and our bills might not be that large but it could enable transition saying that at the same time there might be ways of working outside the regulated market in order to connect up uh, merchant solar merchant wind or um, uh, public car charging stations in order to get the transition going and lastly i think measurement visualization and analysis of the medium and low voltage networks is extremely poor all over the world Uh, virtually none of the nodes on the 33 kV networks or the 11 kV networks of um, the 11 kV transformers are monitored. I think if we were to monitor those and visualize where the actual pins points are coming, we'd be able to develop new heuristics within which to run those uh, networks and target investments. So rather than maybe make a 100 uh, euro investment, maybe we could get away making a 20 euro investment this year and delay the rest of the 80 for four or five years.
0: Can you just explain, maybe expand a little bit more on this concept of why it is important, you know, to to measure? I mean, what what exactly are we measuring? Are we measuring the usage? I mean, the efficiency, let's say, of, you know, parts of the nectar to identify, you know, what needs to be upgraded?
1: Yeah. So to give you an example, I mean, a lot of uh, uh, people that we supply technology to in Switzerland or even in Asia, they... Connecting capacity. What is the hosting capacity of that network? That becomes a major technical challenge for them and when they get a request to connect up a rooftop solar or to connect up a wind farm or to connect a public EV charging station, they really don't understand whether the transformers, the cables, the substations are capable of hosting that capacity because of the bidirectional flow. By measuring the right points in the network, by collecting that data, by visualizing it and using some power flow algorithms, load flow algorithms, you are able to assess whether the pinch points are temporary in nature or the pinch points are uh, more generic in nature. And uh, some of the things our customers have been able to do is make a small change to a small length of cable and all of a sudden the hosting capacity can increase almost double as a consequence of that. Whereas if they looked at it in the traditional form, what they would think of doing would be to change a large part of the network. They might have to upgrade the substation. They might have to upgrade the entire conductor assembly and the transformers. So it's really about picking out and understanding where load flow is happening, how that is changing every day, every week, every hour, such that you can make some very, very informed decisions and reduce your investment today and defer it uh, going forward. Because the net present value of that is going to be very, very large.
0: Thank you. So while while we're here saying that obviously um, electrification is key and we need to enable electrification with uh, bigger and better cable networks, we're also seeing some setbacks in the... A renewable space. And I'm thinking in particular about the wind sector. Um, I mean, there has been some troubles in Europe. Um, maybe you can also uh, tell us a little bit about that. But, uh, um, you know, we've seen Orsted, which is a major player, having issues. I mean, what is causing that? And is is that going to you know, make investors even less uh, or more cautious, let's say, you know, of going into this segment?
1: Sure. I think offshore wind is and always has been a great source of energy. Um, the reality is that the cost of offshore wind, uh, normally what happens is when you deploy a new technology, the more you deploy it, the lower the costs become. But. As a consequence of some of the technical challenges and some of the engineering challenges, the cost of offshore plants has actually increased. And what we saw in the UK, I think it was last month, when they put out bidding for offshore plants, there were actually no bids. And when I talk to our customers who are those people who invest in those wind farms, they're just not able to make the sums uh, add up. And I think that's, again, where we need to probably as a whole relook at what is the cost of the transition going to be and are there some um, unique or some new uh, models that can be put out in place for developers to say, that there will be some fixed cost components. There will be some cost escalation components that can be met in some other ways. And uh, one uh, concept, for example, in India that works really well is what is called viability gap funding. So there are certain sectors where the government says, we understand there might be some viability gaps in putting up a project. And they say to developers, look, we'll give you X Uh, to bridge that viability gap, and and you have a period of five, six, seven years, whatever the agreement is, to bridge that viability gap. And that gives developers the confidence that they have a base load and and they're assured of a certain revenue. And it gives them also a certain time period to say, how can we uh, innovate, how can we experiment, and develop some slightly different business models so that when the viability gap funding dries up, we still have a flourishing and growing business.
0: That's an interesting model. I don't think it's uh, applied in Europe at all. Um, I I also, just to stay a little bit on this uh, wind um, uh, power issue, um, I I also believe that uh, the cost of raw materials, which has been rising, is a factor. So there's kind of a double whamming, the maintenance, the technical challenge and the cost of raw materials. I mean, is that also a problem for wind, but maybe also for other renewable segment?
1: Yes, certainly. I mean, the immediate impact of aftermath of COVID has been that there has been inflation across all commodities. Um, the reality is that all of these projects are 2025 20, year projects. And while there are certain spikes in commodity price increases, these things generally tend to even out. And the underlying rate of cost increase always matches inflation. So. Um, I would say developers, governments, everybody needs to take a slightly pragmatic approach to what those cost increases are. And if they are acute in nature, if they're not chronic, because technology generally tends to drive costs down. So if they are acute in nature, then figure out a different way of uh, sharing that risk so that the projects can get developed and can get moved on. Because unfortunately, what is happening is that as a consequence of these um, temporary cost increases, a lot of projects are getting delayed. And that's putting the transition back, which is not the right thing.
0: Um, Absolutely. Um, Apart from, obviously, the rising cost in uh, raw materials, you know, I was just wondering whether you feel there is um, a supply constraint, you know, coming from the raw materials. I mean, the demands, the demand, or, you know, even the theoretical demand of what we would need to sort of electrify the world is, is large and rising. Are there bottlenecks maybe on the supply at the supply chain level that you are seeing
1: um i don't think i can make a card plan statement to say yes or no it's a very very nuanced there are certain segments where there are issues there. now there are certain segments where there are likely to be issues going forward the reality is that every transition every project always has some constraints and, and we must try to run these projects in a manner where there are not 15 or 20 constraints that we're trying to manage simultaneously i think we should decide what the biggest constraining factor is uh, keep that in control and drive the projects down that route and this is why i personally feel that fuel source diversity is going to be absolutely critical to success because unless and until we build that fuel source diversity we'll all be chasing after the same piece of material uh, which is needed in order to make the transition happen Uh, So, you know, if if we decided to just go down the route of of solar, then each of us, everybody would be chasing that same piece of silicon in order to get that out. But if we were to look at multiple fuel sources, then the projects could carry on and the constraints wouldn't be that uh, spiky in nature. And that would allow the supply side to maintain a consistent output.
0: Um, This is uh, quite interesting, obviously, um, you know, for people who are interested in climate change. I mean, the the push is to go towards the greatest possible electrification, of course, from renewable sources. Today, we have numbers showing that, let's say, only 20% of the power produced comes from electricity, from renewable sources. So in your view, between now, I mean, if we go all the way to 2050, what will be the share of electricity coming from renewables
1: sure I think um, energy how much of the energy is going to be electricity and then how much of that electricity is going to be renewable uh, I think chasing a hundred percent energy primary and secondary from electricity would probably be the wrong thing because who's using that energy and what's that energy being used for will determine how much of it can be electric and how much of it can be other things and again with electricity what is renewable i mean there are people who debate all sorts of debates ongoing about what is renewable and and what isn't even for electricity i think it is absolutely essential that we do have um, hydro we do have a certain blend of fossil fuels in there because technically for the system to operate what we do need is frequency control we do need voltage control because that is what keeps the system up and alive I am not in a position to say how much of it will be renewable or not, but if we keep the technical requirements of the system front and center, and then we try and figure out over time, any day, any week, any month, any season, what is the energy that is required and we maximize the amount that comes from clean sources, and then we create a priority order to say what is the dirtiest of all of them, You know whether it is black coal or furnace oil or whatever those things are. And we start to, in the reverse of merit order dispatch, we start to wean out the really dirty parts of the energy supply chain. Then we will have some um, uh, finite steps and clear steps in order to make the transition.
0: But do you still see a role for some fossil fuels, you know, In 2050, which is kind of, you know, the the date for the net zero goal.
1: I would be surprised if before in the next 25 years, there wasn't a role for fossil fuels in the energy supply chain.
0: And are we talking chiefly gas? You know, maybe coal will be phased out or, you know, are we still going to have coal? And is that because the global south is struggling to move to renewables?
1: Um, I would hope that in the next 25 years, we can get rid of all the black coal. I think there might be some brown coal which is left, uh, which is not a, not a bad thing. I think gas will play a role. Uh, and I don't think it's because the global south is struggling to make the transition. I think just some of the system requirements on how the system will be run, how mornings and evenings will be taken care of, is really going to determine uh, wh- how and where the transition is made.
0: Uh, Just because you mentioned, you know, how the system um, is going to be run in the morning and evening needs. I mean, are you talking about uh, the storage bottlenecks that, you know, uh, people talk about when when you obviously renewables are intermittent? I mean, that's the big difference with fossil fuel power. Um, So, I mean, are we not going to be able to solve that uh, problem with, um, you know, large storage, uh, large batteries basically for storage?
1: Uh, yes I think however unpalatable it might be I think we will struggle to solve the entire problem using storage again with storage I think we need a blend we need flywheels we need pumped hydro uh, and a place where we aren't making enough investment is alternative electrochemical alternative batteries technologies in order to make sure that the cost and the reliability of supply can be maintained because lithium is costly and also will become trickier to source if we try to put very, very large battery storage around that.
0: And are there uh, alternative battery technologies that look promising, you know, as a substitute to lithium?
1: Yes, there are some very promising technologies. Sodium ion is the one which... uh, has received a lot of investment in the last year or two, and a lot of people are working on that. And, uh, from what I've read, technically, it does have some very strong merits, and it's something that we should just have to very quickly.
0: Um, maybe um, a couple of final questions to round off this is really interesting conversation. Um, when we talk about diversification of um, energy sources, I mean, do you feel there are other, let's say, clean sources that are maybe? overlooked right now because the focus is very much on electricity uh, from renewable like solar and wind I would say
1: yes I think there are a few uh, <clears throat> I think there are parts of the world where hydro has still not been tapped to its full potential. Uh, I think microhydro hasn't been tapped to its full potential in a lot of uh, the rural world especially in Africa and Asia there can be places that can be done and whether we like it or not I think nuclear if we really want to wean ourselves away from fossil fuels, then we do have to have a backbone where electricity is coming from nuclear.
0: And what about biofuels? I mean, do you see a role for that?
1: Oh, yes, for sure. Absolutely. I think mobility uh, and in electricity, biofuels are going to play a part just as as much as green hydrogen is going to play a part or hydrogen, gray or green, is going to play a part in that, yeah. Okay,
0: but just coming back to our original thought, um, I mean, on the on the grid investments. I mean, if you were to talk to a private investor, uh, PE firm, infrastructure fund, I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, again, you know, what kind of uh, uh, areas or segment uh, would you suggest uh, they sort of concentrate on? Um, you know, if they have maybe a sort of a 15 to 20 year investment horizon.
1: Um, Yes, if investors are holding a 15 to 20 year investment horizon, then I would say that um, how they're pricing in risk, they really need to understand that. Uh, A lot of models price in all the risk, whereas over 15 to 20 years, some of that risk, whether it be price or volume, can be managed and uh, can be worked on creatively to to solve issues. Um, It is not a slam dunk business case right now because there are still some questions around tariffs and there are still some questions around rules, but the transition is here, the transition must happen and unless there is investment in the networks, the transition is not going to be possible. So, I think if we all have faith in the fact that the transition is necessary, then we should take some risks, uh, figure out what are the best ways of managing those risks and make the investments.
0: Well, thank you so much, Suket. I mean, it was a real pleasure to meet you today and have this, uh, um, you know, wide-ranging conversation about the challenges of electrification.
1: Thank you very much, Lisa. Uh, uh, Thanks a lot for inviting me, and I really enjoyed the conversation as well.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslik in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with more of our views on breakingviews.com and on the X social media site, where our handle is at Breaking views. I'm Kim Vinell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine...
1: Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover.
0: ...to the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.